BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, time to take a look at what we expect out of this year's NBA Finals. Raptors and Warriors will have our picks, of course, at the end. But the first thing that stuck out to me about this matchup is I think this is pretty easily the best defense that the Warriors have played against in this entire run since 2015. So you're focusing more on defensive talent, talent plus scheme, or both? Yeah, I think both. The the intelligence level, uh, defensive talent, you know, maybe you could say that that 2016 OKC team was up there, but that team had, you know, Russell Westbrook, who's going to fall asleep, and KD could bring incredible effort, but also would wane a little bit. It didn't have the most amazing communication. This Raptors team has everything that you could possibly want defensively. If they want to go to the approach of trying to get over screens on Curry, Kyle Lowry could do a pretty good job of that. He chased J.J. Redick around for seven games against Philly. Fred Van Vliet looked really good on Curry in the one game in Oakland. John Schumann had this stat that Curry scored just four points on 39 possessions with Van Vliet guarding. Van Vliet is excellent at getting through screens, really physical. They've got Danny Green, Kawhi Leonard, Pascal Siakam, who can switch. Ibaka is still capable of switching if needed nobody in their rotation really looks like a liability except for maybe marcus all and this is where and in certain circumstances norman powell i want to add him in then we can get to marcus all yeah and that's a possibility we'll see whether he holds up from a communication standpoint i think as an on-ball guy i think he's totally good uh the one thing that they may not be able to do is to switch everything and that's because og ananobi who may come back at some point in the series but hard to expect that he could get up to playing against the warriors in the nba finals type of speed also a shooting liability on the other end which of course we'll get to as well so i don't know that the switch everything approach is going to work that well now they do have guys in siakam and leonard and danny green who can guard draymond green switch any kind of green or curry action i'm not sure that curry is going to be able like he doesn't have a james harden that he can go after for example you know that's why i'd say the rockets definitely caused the warriors problems but even someone like pj tucker i thought you know is better as kind of a big burly guy they're they're not as quick as a lot of these raptors and these raptors are also extremely disruptive leading the postseason in deflections 14.4 per game warriors are are right up there too in the 13s range and you just have a lot of athleticism a lot of intelligence a lot of versatility and just great individual defensive players Kawhi leonard is the best wing defender of this era ibaka is is an excellent shot blocker marcus all slow but has a, a ton of intelligence 
Siakam is really a great shot blocker around the room as well. I think that's another thing that is kind of being lost here is that Draymond and Looney in particular, and then the Warriors' other centers, have just had a complete field day in these playoffs, just going right to the room and finishing. Both Draymond and Looney are shooting over 70% at the room in these playoffs. So those guys, in particular Draymond, have had their finishing problems in the past. Draymond looks better now that he's lost the weight. But this is not going to be, I mean, you look at the Clippers, no rim protection at all on that team. Houston, one rim protector capella was normally forced away from the rim by their switching scheme and then portland really nobody to protect the rim at all whereas you've got a lot of guys whether it's taking charges with lowry and van vliet danny green is one of the best shot blocking two guards the best rim protecting two guards siakam can come out of nowhere for blocks ibaka it's not going to be even when you get those guys going to the rim it's not going to be just this absolute field day just go ahead and finish once you double team curry toronto so much better at scrambling around than these teams that the Warriors have faced in the West playoffs so far. A point I want to emphasize along these lines is that Toronto has an unusual combination of players who are capable on ball and then dominant in help reactionary capacities. Like Danny Green's a good example here. Kawhi is an amazing example. Siakam too. And deflections could be a big part of this series. The Warriors can be a little reckless with the ball. They can be more than a little reckless with the ball. And Toronto can take advantage of that. I will throw one strange kind of caveat on there, and it's something I appreciated more by virtue of us doing so many Raptors games by the NBA cast, and that's the biggest weakness of Toronto's defense so far doesn't necessarily make sense with their personnel, but it's been their execution in transition. There were weird moments in the Bucks series where Danny Green was just picking up Giannis for not a particularly good reason, or they were getting caught on the offensive glass. Those mistakes are so much more devastating against the Warriors with or without Kevin Durant. They have a lot of players that can move the ball quickly and that can take advantage of the mistakes that are created. They don't necessarily have a guy like Giannis who you put the wrong guy on him and it's just going to become mincemeat really, really quickly. I mean, Durant can be that guy Curry can at moments, but Giannis is a little bit different in the way that he presses his advantages. But that is concerning to me because of the way the Warriors can stress test those communication issues or identification issues. Yeah, I'm not quite as worried about it as you. I I thought they did a better job towards the end of the Milwaukee series matching up. But also, when they were going against Giannis, it was, all right, if we don't have the right guy on him, then he's just going to plow right through. Here, I think it actually doesn't matter as much as long as it's not Gasol stuck on the wrong guy, which, you know, could happen. But, and his role in this series is going to be very interesting to monitor how much he's going to play and against whom. But I do think that they have enough versatility around the other four spots that all right we're just going to match up it's okay and you're not dying if it's pascal siakam stuck on steph curry or if it's lowry stuck on curry uh obviously Kawhi is fine there too i think the matchups for toronto is going to be another interesting one obviously you're, they're gonna have to do at least some switching off the ball uh, on some of the stuff and i think they should do that who does Kawhi guard i think i would probably start with him on draymond L- let him be more of a help guy uh then the question becomes where do you put Siaka, maybe you put him on, on Iguodala. I think you know those those two matchups are pretty much interchangeable to me. Uh, and both of those guys 
are among the best of their position at, at helping at the three and four positions i think you probably start with danny green on clay and lowry on steph fred van vliet i think is going to get a lot of time in this series i think he's their best defender on steph and then what do you do with gasol assuming that golden state starts one of their non-looney centers or maybe starts cousins probably start off with with gasol there and then what are you going to do on the pick and roll when gasol is involved what are you going to do when clay thompson is coming off screen set by gasol's man we saw some of the Raptors' biggest struggles was guarding the Redick Joel Embiid handoff with Gasol. I think when he's not guarding Embiid, he can be a little bit more aggressive getting on the floor. And we did see him do that at times especially late in possessions more than i thought but this is going to be another animal i think gasol is probably gonna have to trap curry and i think though you know it's not going to be like it was against portland or houston where kavan looney can make a play out of pick and roll because i think just i mean he might be able to do it but this toronto defense is so much more active so much smarter so much better hands so much better at rim protecting that someone like looney coming downhill at them in a four on three especially when you've got two non-shooters among the other four guys Iguodala and Green and there's really not many people off the Golden State bench that are just terrifying you as shooters either I I think there's a chance that Toronto could cause big problems for Golden State in this year without Kevin Durant if Kevin Durant comes back then of course that changes everything if he is close to full speed we we could talk a little bit about what it's going to look like with KD coming back um anything you wanted to add there or do you want to hit on another point no I think that's a pretty good summary should we talk about Cousins sure we can talk about Cousins and again how Kerr uses him you know in some ways there are similarities to Marcus Gasol like Cousins brings advantages and then brings disadvantages also dependent in Cousins case on on his health and one area that I've thought about and this goes back to something I wrote for the Athletic Bay Area I, I believe in the summer about how Cousins most important positive could be as an offensive linchpin during the minutes when Curry sits the standard procedure there has been other than when Curry's in foul trouble that is the beginning of of the second and the fourth. That often is a period of time that Marcus Gasol is not on the floor, which I think would be dangerous for Toronto, just kind of going back to the Ibaka and Bede stuff to ra- in the second round. So how Kerr uses him, whether he feels like, oh, if Cousins is ready to play, he has to start. And then that gets into the other kind of, another one of the big questions with and without Duran is, how often do we see Draymond at center? A lot of times for Kerr, that has been the break glass in case of emergency. Yeah. But I don't think has- we're going to see it at all, actually, when, unless KD is I think we'll see it barely at all. It, maybe maybe a few times. They with just like don't have enough like, yeah, yeah, but only in yeah, specific Looney circumstances. Looney is too good. Like he's got to right. play. He's one he, of their yeah, five he's, best guys. He's better than the other wings. Like that. I think that's the big takeaway there is that it's not a break glass in case of emergency if you have other lineups that are better. Yeah, and I mean, it, I think that this is a series especially without KD, where the Warriors' lack of depth can come home to roost from a shooting standpoint and then defensively as well uh, in terms of guarding Kawhi. So from a shooting standpoint, especially when it's only one of Curry or Thompson on the floor, I don't think those Steph Curry by himself units at the end of the first and third quarter are going to work nearly as well. I mean, they're playing him with basically four non-shooters. McKinney can hit a corner three, but it's Draymond, Looney, 
in those units you know Queen Cook and Curry together is probably not good enough defensively Jarebko certainly a big concern for him defensively as well so I I think Toronto is going to do a much better job than Portland did of not letting Curry beat them especially in minutes like that and now Toronto has to score on the other end to keep them out of transition because that's where Curry can really get loose during those periods in particular but I, I think Toronto is good enough here to not just lose so badly to units that only have Curry in them uh because they are pretty good defensively I I think it's an excellent point you made about you know Cousins going up against Gasol or not you would think you know Cousins wasn't being used that much in the post anyway even before the injury they probably have more use of for that now than when KD was available but we'll see I, I thought Cousins when he came back the first time really struggled with his touch around the rim and then down the end of the regular season started to get a, a better feel for this more groundbound style that he's gonna have to play now and finishing him trying to post up against Marcus Hall I don't see that working but against Ibaka maybe it does and just providing a little bit more playmaking Cousins kind of floor raising style can really help those units without Curry and also I think Cousins you know it's just it's a question of where he's at you know if he's looking the way he was looking at the end of the regular season when he was pretty decent uh really on both ends at times then I think he could really help it's just a question of how effective he can be coming off of that quad injury and you know, it sounds like he's you know Kerr said today if it were the regular season he'd be playing I predict that you know he'll probably get 10 or 15 minutes or at least that'll be the plan to play mostly with bench units in the first game and then if he handles that well and, and plays well maybe he'll get more uh but you don't know what type of shape he's in as well he's going to need to play hard uh i guess one good thing is that defensively i'm not sure this is the team that's really going to stress him out too much you know they don't have like the kind of put him in space pick and roll game and ibaka is shooting so terribly from three that if that's who he's matched up against you know it's probably not the end of the world so uh i think this series could be a, a good matchup for him but it's just a question of how ready he's going to be off another thing yeah go, go ahead well i was just going to turn a little bit to when toronto has the ball oh no i'm not ready for that yet I, oh. i've got more okay uh so schumann had this stat as well curry is scoring in these playoffs 1.24 points per possession on isos and 1.18 points per possession as the pick and roll ball handler. he has just been absolutely dynamite again against teams you know the clippers totally adjusted their defense to take the ball out of his hands in the first round houston a lot of his isos came against you know hardened type of players i don't think he's going to be able to maintain those numbers against this type of defense and if he does the warriors are going to win uh this might transition into what you're going to start talking about but one thing i haven't really heard talked about as much of the series and obviously we're, we're kind of later than a lot of people were doing this preview after i've read some of the others obviously is just who's going to play better in this series steph curry or Kawhi leonard you know, we've talked this entire postseason about how who the best player in the world is might be on the line and we've had so many twists and turns just in these playoffs you know with lebron being out first it was kd going crazy then he gets injured and wasn't playing quite as well later in the houston series Kawhi basically the whole way especially considering his two-way ability has been awesome Giannis was looking great and then he couldn't really do much against Toronto relative to his usual lofty standards and then Curry was looking so bad and basically since uh the end of game five of the Houston series he's looked like he's the right up there for the best player in the playoffs and so I think uh, unless KD comes back 
and looks really good just who plays better out of curry or Kawhi is probably your number one determinant of how this series goes and that's probably a time to turn to you know who has the easier matchup would you say would you say curry or Kawhi has the easier matchup i think it's quite difficult for both of them frankly it is difficult for both of them and i'm i'm leaning towards Kawhi having the easier matchup at least at the start we've seen durant defend him well but we don't know what durant we're going to see and when we're going to see it so iguodala strong guy brilliant defender they can go with draymond they can try a lot of different the warriors can try a lot of different things but corver sorry not corver kyle lowry i was combining two players in my head kyle lowry fred van vliet danny green in in moments I, I think those guys can make life hard on Curry. Now they're they're not necessarily the shutdown defender got defenders to just like make everything impossible for him. But especially Van Vliet, just making him work harder each possession than he has, especially against the Trailblazers, where Curry did not. He was working hard on many possessions, but he didn't have to as much. That series was not a stress test. So yeah, I would go with Kawhi as having the easier matchup as of as of right now. Yeah, and Kawhi is a little bit less perturbed by help defense because he wants to create space in the mid range. He's shooting incredibly well from mid range, over fifty percent in these playoffs. I think my initial matchup for him would be actually putting Clay Thompson on him, and because Iguodala is better as a help defender, I actually think that Clay might be a little bit stronger than Iguodala. Now Clay is more prone to foul trouble, so maybe that's why you don't start that way. But I think Clay might be their best matchup, other than KD against. Kawhi because he's just got pretty quick feet and he's strong and he's just going to stay pretty solid I think you know Kawhi is so strong with the ball that the Iguodala strip game doesn't work quite as well against him I wouldn't say uh Kawhi is kind of more patient whereas Iguodala takes advantage more of these guys who are kind of more frenetic I mean Iguodala is a decent option but largely I've found that the Warriors have not had a great answer this is going back to San Antonio for Kawhi going at them in isolation and now that Kawhi his passing is improved i'm not sure if double teaming is going to be the answer draymond would also be a great option i think on Kawhi because of his you know Kawhi is not necessarily going to out quick you and draymond is strong enough maybe to not get knocked backwards but they need draymond as a help defender and yeah he can switch on to Kawhi when the action calls for it but putting him as the main guy draymond to me needs to be on siakam he can take away siakam's drive game and also help off of him liberally so i, I think that's the the way to start off there and maybe Maybe, you know, if you're on a key possession at the end, you could go with Draymond on, on uh, Kawhi. The reason I think KD defends Kawhi the best on anyone, though, is that KD is long enough that he can back off a little bit, not let Kawhi get into his body and knock him back to create space, and then can challenge the shot. And Kawhi, you know, he's not this like amazing pick and roll operator, so that doesn't stress KD's ability to get around screens as much. So uh, they do have a lot of options on Kawhi. Ultimately, I would say I think Curry is a little bit easier of a matchup just because of Toronto's centers and that they're not really going to want to switch with those guys. And so when you're playing conventional defense against Curry, generally he's going to find an opening eventually that's a good point i was thinking more about the guards than the bigs but the bigs are somewhat favorable for him which is funny considering i would say that okc team has been the best defenders against the warriors in this era and serge baka was on those teams but it was a, a little bit of a different construction and obviously abaco is three years older now than he was then so i am interested in kind of how all that all that plays out now are you ready to talk about i mean we already got into it a little bit with Kawhi, but how yeah no no what else you got here so i think toronto's half court 
scored offense has been in the season a little bit underappreciated. They were eighth in the league using cleaning the glasses filter in half court offense. And because they got out and transitioned so much, they didn't have to use it as much. Transition defense has been a problem for the Warriors more in the regular season than the playoffs, but still for years, especially because when they turn the ball over a lot, they're out of position. So that that's an interesting thing that I want to keep track of. But I think the Warriors outside of Kawhi can do a really good job of making life hard on Toronto. They have so many intelligent defenders and there are not a ton of places where I think Curry's going to be put into real difficulty, not because he's a bad defender, but because he's foul prone and Curry in foul trouble is still the single best way to beat the Warriors. I'm guessing it happens at least once in these finals, just because it almost always does. But I do not see that being as incidentally as impactful as let's say it was in the Clippers series where the Clippers had a lot of those kind of attacking guards that could get him in problems. Now, Lowry can in moments, but if Lowry's starting to get Curry in trouble, then you can put him on Danny Green, which is actually the way He's going to start on Danny. I assume he will. And, And so that creates... A, a safe enough hiding place and Danny Green because he shoots I mean ideally he makes them at least more than he did in the last series but you probably don't want to put that help dynamic help defender on Danny Green you'd rather just do that on Pascal Siakam I agree with you that that's where Draymond Green should at least start games and similar idea to Joel Embiid the benefit though being that because Draymond is often playing alongside a center, then you have even more congestion around the rim. So I don't think Curry's going to be as freaked out in this series. And then the Warriors have a lot of guys that I think can make life hard hard on Kyle Lowry. And I was thrilled that he did so well in the Milwaukee series after his struggles in the playoffs in previous years. He is in a better ecosystem now that Kawhi can be so ball dominant and he can, you know, pick his spots a little bit more. But other than when he's playing against Quinn Cook, I think this series could be a, a, a real challenge for Fred Van Vliet. And unless it's the Warriors just helping off of him, he will get shots that way. And so I'm concerned, sort of paralleling, though I think it's they're better than this. The concern that I had going back to that 2017 Spurs series that we never really got to see because Kawhi Leonard got hurt halfway through game one, that I worried that as good as San Antonio was and as as strong as their defense was that year, that they weren't going to be able to score reliably against the Warriors. Because the problem is, if it's tough defense on both sides, then it's coming down to like, who can who can pull a couple of shots and get late, whether it's late game offense or just earlier in the game, pick up a couple extra points. Generally speaking, the Warriors have those advantages because they just have so much talent. And even without Kevin Durant, I think that general paradigm is still there. Yeah, I think this Toronto offense is better than that San Antonio one. They space the floor a, a lot more, much better passing team than that San Antonio team. I mean, that, that San Antonio team, it was playing with some pretty limited players uh, out there uh, at times in, from a spacing perspective. Did it have Aldridge, but Aldridge has never caused a ton of problems for Golden State. Yeah, defensively with Curry on Green, Thompson uh, on Lowry. Thompson allows you to switch stuff uh, with Lowry uh, and hopefully not be uh, in a disadvantage. I don't expect to see the Raptors go to the target Curry offense very much. You know, they really didn't do that much against JJ Redick, who's even more targetable. And when they tried, it didn't really work. Uh, Danny Green, for whatever reason, you know, he, he was not great at that. His pick and pop ability wasn't really used he can't make a play very well off the dribble i expect if he does try to do that that the warriors are, are going to force him into turnover some ugly misses at the rim Serge Ibaka having to make decisions in pick and roll is also something i think the warriors will be pleased to see and while toronto has gone up against some very good defenses probably not 
quite teams that are as intelligent or as turnover forcing as the Warriors are the Bucks and Sixers don't force many turnovers even though Toronto has had a few problems with that in certain games another thing that's going to be really interesting in this series is the possession game and the hustle game Toronto not a great defensive rebounding team we probably will not see Ibaka and Gasol together at all maybe you could get away with some units like that at the start of the second and fourth quarters but Golden State actually has been surprisingly good on the offensive glass when they force teams to go small and then a lot of times they have the hustle and the athleticism advantage i think toronto's can still be pretty athletic i'm also interested to see if toronto will try siakam at center anyway even if ananobi is not available you go with Kawhi at the four van fleet and lowry together either green or powell at the three those could be units that they would try i don't think we'll see those in game one but if the warriors really start carving up toronto's centers then we might be in a different situation going forward here um what do you expect from kd in this series and how does his return potentially change the series whenever it would occur it has a few massive effects even if he is limited one of them is just another dynamic offensive player that toronto has to account for and i don't think nick nurse unless KD just looks so limited, can afford to put too many guys other than Kawhi in base alignments on Durant. He's so much taller than their guards. And yeah, Kyle Lowry can get into his body. Maybe he can try to do some of the Patrick Beverly stuff. But generally speaking, I think those those are going to be pretty significant negatives. And then I think he'll Durant will find a space to attack their bigs, including former teammate Serge Ibaka, though I do think Gasol is a much more favorable matchup for KD. But then the other just, just massive development whenever Durant comes back, should he come back, is taking minutes away from non-finals-worthy players. So even if it's 20 minutes a game, those 20 minutes are coming from players who are significantly worse than Kevin Durant. And, you know, Kerr's still going to do a deep rotation. That's just, that's who he is. It's a part of his coaching DNA. And, you know, maybe those spots will work out well like they did in Game 6 against the Rockets and largely in the Blazers series, though. Portland, not exactly as threatening as some of the other teams they could have faced in you know in the west playoffs so it will be important especially because durant a durant return would coincide with when all of the other warrior starters are being pushed harder now kerr over the course of a season and i firmly agree with this especially for a team as good as the warriors he's very judicious about making sure that his starters don't get overextended we've seen through these playoffs largely due to necessity that that has already kicked in but now they've had a week off and there is no tomorrow so how much curry plays how much draymond plays and there could be some diminishing returns if those guys start pushing above 42 43 but if you combine those ramp ups with Durant just straight up replacing some of those minutes I think Nick Nurse just gets a little less comfortable because there aren't as many you know McKinney's and Jarebko's of the world to attack yeah if I'm Curry I don't want to push Curry much past 40 or 41 minutes when he just has to do so much when he's out there in that game four against Portland he left him in for the whole second half and he was done by the time there's about five minutes left in the half or in the game um even if kd comes back and he's just like stand in the corner and be the world's most awesome 3 and d guy who can just shoot over anyone when you leave him and defend Kawhi okay and maybe post up a little bit you know i think coming off that calf injury if he's not a hundred percent where you're most limited with the calf injury is making the same kind of motion that he injured it with where you have to put your leg behind you and push off so if he is limited i would expect that his drive game would be the biggest issue facing 
passing up but moving his feet defensively you're not as limited there you know running the floor you it's going to be harder to attack and transition and finish but shooting the jump shot should be okay for him posting up should work reasonably well also for him conditioning could be an issue i mean we're talking about him doing individual work right now he hasn't even been out on the floor with his teammates taking any contact yet i'd be shocked if he plays before game two he did travel with the team but you know some of that might just be because it's the finals and they wanted to be part of it and also just give the raptors something to think about for game two I, i'd be very surprised if he returns then and i don't think he's going to be 100 percent. but just him and cousins again getting some of these jurebko's and cooks and mckinney's out of there this isn't the type of situation like with the rockets or the Cavs, where anybody who's just not a really good defender is going to get picked on you know the raptors don't play that way necessarily other than Kawhi, they don't really have the personnel to play that way but i do think durant coming back uh, could change the series big surprise there that was one of the more inane things i've ever said but my guess would be you know game four if maybe game five if they're up in the series is when he comes back um anything else you want to hit on before we get into predictions one other brief point that i'll make is i am interested in whether nick nurse will use steve kerr's more reliable rotation against him with kerr even even dealing with injuries the way that they have you pretty much know when their best players are going to be on the court and if nurse feels that a specific player is better or worse in those minutes like let's say he thinks mark gasol is not particularly desirable to have on the floor when steph curry's on the floor we know steph curry's most likely rest is going to be at the beginning of the second and fourth so i've said for years that proactive coaches because the warriors are so good and you need to kind of be in these more david e strategies no matter what should use that reliability against the warriors and maybe kerr will adjust eventually but probably not and so i my instinct is that nurse is going to start doing some of that later on just like d'antoni has at moments and a few other coaches over the last couple of years couple other little notes here before we predict the ability of Toronto's spot-up shooters to hit. I mean, Danny Green is in this awful slump, of course, but Powell has shot extremely well. Van Fleet is on this unprecedented run, 14-17 on threes over his last three games if he couldn't hit anything. Gasol, his ability to hit three-pointers has been a huge bellwether for Toronto in these playoffs. Lowry, Leonard, I think you can count on those guys to, to shoot it pretty well. But I do think those are going to be available. I think the Warriors are going to try and take away the rim. The Warriors actually have allowed the fewest percentage of shots at the rim of any team in these playoffs which is amazing to think about since they're not the biggest team in the world they're not like a milwaukee type of team which team faces the bigger shock i think will be interesting right the warriors haven't played a defense like this but toronto of course has not played an offense like this with this level of movement the type of stress that steph curry puts on you in the playoffs you know who's gonna be the the team that kind of gets staggered by the difference in competition at first that's going to be huge as well so i'm ready to do my prediction well i want to mention one yeah. more thing oh yeah and this is something going back to a few different players over the course of my time covering the league have talked about this about how unusual the structure of the nba finals is and so that can be things like extra days off which generally beneficial especially to the team that works their guys harder but also like weird shoot arounds and travel times and all that kind of stuff and i remember iguodala talking about how big an adjustment that was there are some raptors that have dealt with this i mean Kawhi and danny 
screen most prominently. Serge Ibaka has played in NBA Finals as well. But that is an adjustment that basically no only two guys on the Warriors really are, are going to be dealing with, who, who two guys who matter. And so I think that is a small advantage. I don't think it's necessarily a big one, but it is interesting because, you know, we like to focus on the on-court stuff, but if players aren't feeling right or they're a little bit off their rhythm, also the games all started at six our time, nine Eastern time, that's a little bit weird as well. So we'll see if that has any impact. Yeah, I think that this, other than Danny Green, while the Raptors are a smart team with a lot of veterans, these are a lot of veterans who desperately have wanted to get to this stage. I guess Ibaka played in the finals in 2012, but Gasol, Lowry, then the, you know some of these young guys on the Raptors too. They're, they're maybe more among the fan base than the team. There was kind of a happy to be here vibe a little bit. I tend to discount these sorts of intangibles a little bit more the, than usual among the media. I'd rather focus on how good the players are and, and what's going on in the court. I, I don't think there's going to be like some big choke job from Kyle Lowry because he's always wanted to get to the finals and now he's here. You know, he's certainly, these guys have all faced plenty of pressure before. Yeah, they're taken out of their routines to some degree, but we'll see. Now, if you want to say there's an adjustment period and Toronto having a home game that they could lose and immediately be big time dogs in the series, they lose game one. Yeah, maybe that's a, a little bit of a disadvantage, but you know, they also have home court advantage. So I think that that cancels that out. If Kevin Durant and DeMarcus Cousins, if I knew that they weren't going to play a minute in the series, I would view this as almost a toss up. I would be, and I probably would actually go with Raptors. I think the Warriors have just, again, you're forgetting who they've played since KD has gone out. Um, Kevin Pelton had a great piece the other day on how exactly things change for the Warriors. Their offense is actually worse without KD, but their defense has gotten better when he's been out this uh, during this 31 in one stretch or whatever it is with Curry, although they lost three of their first six that they played without KD when he went down in Washington in the 16-17 season. So the offense gets worse, not surprisingly. The defense, though, has gotten better. I think that KD's lack of focus, especially in the regular season, especially over the last couple of years, has really negatively impacted their regular season defense. He's been better in the playoffs. Still, though, prone to some lapses. I thought that his laissez-faire attitude on the glass, for example, really cost them in games three and four of that Houston series that they lost. I do think he, though, helps them a ton. He gives them a much higher top end. He also gives them a greater margin for error because if Curry or Thompson has a bad game, then they can still win. It's going to be difficult for Golden State to win games in this series when Steph Curry does not play very well. And I think this Toronto defense is good enough to, at a minimum, take the ball out of his hands more and also cause him to have some rush shooting nights in this series. I don't expect him to just completely dominate the way he did the Portland series where he was just 38 a game on really good efficiency every night. But I do think, you know, Cousins, I think, can help them if only because it helps take some other guys out of the rotation and it gives them a little bit more scoring on that second unit where it's going to be a rock fight the Raptors have been awful by the way with Leonard off at the start of the second and fourth quarters offensively in these playoffs so I think you know we could be looking at a 2-2 series when KD comes back Cousins at least they have the option of just kind of not playing him but if he is playing well they can play him more and so he gives them just a little bit more of an out maybe he can help them win one game with some big contributions here and there I think he does help them especially with KD out to just have that one more score I if KD weren't coming back I think I would have gone with Raptors in seven I do think he's going to come back even if he's limited he can help so I'm actually going to go with Golden State in seven here and the thinking being I you know taking a page out of your book you never want to take the road team in a game seven but my thinking here is that Toronto might be up in the series and then KD comes back and that's why the Warriors end up that's how it gets to a game seven but the Warriors end up winning because KD is back that's kind of the way I 
see this playing out here so you'll almost never see me pick a road team to win in a game seven in a series but because of that specific circumstance that's where i'm going here but i absolutely believe that the raptors can win this series and that in terms of like the betting markets they're underpriced we agree on that and if if kevin durant and demarcus cousins especially durant if durant were not playing in the series i would have picked the raptors i expect for him to be back at some point and as i said even if he's playing 20 minutes a game those 20 minutes are coming from players that are significantly worse even than a limited kevin durant and the stress that he puts on the raptors which they would not face otherwise is is really important here toronto's defense is is fabulous i think that they will do a really good job especially for stretches of this game i mean we saw that in game six of the milwaukee series that in that third quarter and the beginning of the fourth part of the reason milwaukee didn't score was that they missed some shots but mostly they were getting really hard looks because the raptors were taking them out they have such smart defenders they do a great job of contesting they don't concede as much penetration as some other teams do and that will be a big adjustment and so in in one way i think that if duran is going to miss let's say one or two games having it be at the beginning when the warriors are going through their adjustment phase anyway is sort of beneficial it's kind of like the idea of if you're going to have a disadvantage you might as well have it when you're going to have another one unless you because then you can compound those and then rebound from it theoretically it would not surprise me in the slightest if the raptors won the series this is one of the closer calls that i've had not only in these playoffs which has had a series of them but in the entire time that we've done dunked on and i want to give the raptors that credence in that respect because especially i mean i made my pick independent i had no idea what you were picking in winter or games that now that i know that uh, both of us picking the warriors is you know i'm sure there are people going to see that as disrespect it shouldn't be because the raptors are awesome i you know last last round yeah. i, I yeah, wrote you, this you, you can't say that i've been disrespecting the raptors i had them i've had them in this spot all year yeah and i i had them in and then took them out and then but you know last i talked about last time it was on twitter because we didn't do it on the show but i talked about how i agonized over that choice because both of those teams are excellent they were and the raptors outplayed the bucks overall in the series took it took it and they're bringing all of that momentum into this series so it is it's not a coin flip for me but it's very close to that and I do think, though, that the the Warriors are a unique challenge. Their intelligence defensively, their personnel, and then what the the what the way that their guards, in particular, and Draymond, when especially when he's engaged, which he has been in these playoffs, the way that their guards challenge you defensively. This is not Eric Bledsoe, George Hill, that kind of thing where it's like you know they'll have they'll have moments where they go off, or even like let's say Pat Connaughton or whatever. Steph Curry, Clay Thompson are both just absolute forces that require a level of diligence physically and mentally that is hard to prepare for and we've seen really good defenses just not necessarily like struggle with it but just have lapses and lapses can be enough so if Draymond had been playing slightly worse in these playoffs I would feel more confident in picking the Raptors but he's been fantastic especially bringing more offensively the possibility of Durant coming back and and also the long stretch of the finals because the games are a little bit more spread out then he can get closer to right by the end of the series and those will be some high leverage games so i'm going warriors in six i think i'm expecting durant to come back a little sooner than you are but again i wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if the raptors win this series and i actually think if it goes through game seven i would have toronto knowing what we know right now i would have them as the favorites but it would be closer than the 80 percent historical record so i understand why you picked what you did and i i mean this could be raptors in six raptors in seven but i'm going warriors in six yeah i bet you if kd is back the warriors would be favored in 
in a game seven on the, like in Vegas. And I would probably favor them. Oh, I agree with you that they would be favored in Vegas. I just, I, my instinct, yeah. I actually talked about this earlier in the day with somebody and I, I said, I think I would have it somewhere around 55% for the Raptors, but it would be close. And, and I mean, there's a lot that we don't know between now and then over those two plus weeks about how the, how each of these teams looks. And I mean, heaven forbid, but there will be subsequent injuries as well. Well, the other thing I really can't wait for is just what historical effect this series could have. Number one, Kawhi staying or going. Number two, KD staying or going uh, if he comes back. If the Warriors basically you know are up 3-1 by the time he comes back or he doesn't come back at all by the time the series is decided, what, what does that change for him? And Steph Curry, if they win this series, he gets finals MVP, has a great series. I mean, that's gonna that'll check off the one box that's still missing on his resume and you know he'll really vault himself into probably the second best point guard of all time uh, with a, a win in this series he might get there anyway for me definitely has the either highest or second highest peak already of any point guard uh, of all time but uh with magic being uh, number one Kawhi, he could really establish himself as an all-time great uh, with uh, a great series maybe, maybe even in defeat frankly uh and uh, again i just going back to the who's going to play better curry or Kawhi question is just going to be absolutely fascinating uh, in this series you know, Kyle Lowry if he if the Raptors win he's probably makes the Hall of Fame now uh, very very interesting historical connotations and especially because this might be the last time we see the Warriors like this the whole league could be different next year as well with a lot of the player movement and some of it depending upon this series so the NBA Finals is not a time for excuses but neither is getting in your car. There is no excuse for not wearing a seatbelt. Make it part of your routine, part of your kid's routine every time you get in the car. The safety equipment in modern cars is really good. Obviously, you want to still drive carefully, but the reason that more people survive crashes now than they used to is because of the seatbelt. Yeah, you've got all these airbags, but that's all designed to work with your seatbelt. If you don't wear your seatbelt, none of that other stuff works as well. So if you're going to say you're in a rush or you're too uncomfortable or you just forget, no, just make it part of your routine. In 2017, more than 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. 51% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes were not wearing seatbelts. And since most people wear their seatbelts, that shows you just how much higher the risk is if you get in a crash when you're not wearing your seatbelt. If you're sitting in the back seat, still need to buckle up. If you're riding in taxis, you're using ride-sharing services, make sure you buckle up too. In 2017 alone, seatbelts saved nearly 15,000 lives. So do the smart thing and buckle up every trip, whether you're driving, not driving, front seat, back seat. Click it or ticket. Let's talk now about RJ Barrett, projected to be the number three overall pick to the Knicks a player i've seen at the lower levels for two hoop summits in a row watched him some playing for the canadian national team at the youth levels stands six foot seven six nine wingspan a very left-handed player kind of a, a two three combo ideally i think with his size six nine wingspan you'd probably want him at the two what are some of the key stats about him that stuck out to you well so this year he put up a 23 per on duke 32 percent usage 50 percent true shooting we'll get back to that soon enough 23.5 percent assist rate and 13 percent turnover rate and so if you want the counting stats 23 points 7.6 rebounds four assists in 35 minutes a game 31 percent from three on 6.2 attempts per game 67 percent from the line on 5.9 free throw attempts per game and like i talked about with zion his numbers were largely the same in conference and overall and that's not really a surprise
surprise because Duke plays a strong non-conference schedule. So, you you know, I'm looking for that more of the aberrational, like those, those teams that play just a bunch of softies in the early part of the year. And so that leads to the disparity. Trey Young, I think, actually had some of this because his shooting numbers really dropped off. So that's one thing. And then another thing I want to mention at the beginning, and eh, no, I'll save that for later. We can, we can get into the other stuff now. Yeah. Also uh, of note, 17.2% defensive rebounds. Thought he was a, a oh, very yeah. good that's a big defensive strength. rebounder. Uh, something, something that sticks out there. Uh, decent on the offensive glass too. 4.8% offensive rebounds uh, for a two guard. He was really playing more of a three at Duke a, a lot of the time. Also have to consider his situation at Duke, which we talked about some with Zion, where they just did not have any other guard who played regularly, who was going to knock down threes. They had a stretch four, this guy, Jack White, who played sometimes, and, you know, they would kind of play him at the three. That was an awkward fit. So there was not a ton of spacing for Barrett, and it, that certainly should be considered in the context. So here's the, the question I wanted to start by talking about here is, what would you say RJ Barrett is really good at right now compared to most prospects that you're, you're talking about it at this type of a level in the draft? It isn't as clear. I had a similar question in, in terms of somebody with his physical gifts. The one that I have that was was impressive to me, and it's funny because it, how it ties in with Zion, is he's a better passer and operator with the ball in his hands than I had expected. Going back to my familiarity with his his Team Canada work, especially, more and the Hoop Summit as well, I didn't realize that he had the court vision that he does, and he throws some really nice entry passes in particular, entry interior passes, finds the role man well. So I see some potential for him to have a, whether it's primary or secondary, creator role, sort of similar to the better parts of DeMar DeRozan's game, where I wouldn't have necessarily thought that DeRozan would be able to take advantage of those circumstances, be as efficient as he as he has been. But especially as a passer in those circumstances, and because a lot of twos, threes, whatever position RJ ends up being guarded by, those, those guys still don't have a ton of experience navigating screen and roll situations. I think that's an interesting strength for him. My big concern and question there, and this ties in with a lot of RJ Barrett's stuff, and this is something I've talked about with, with Jason Tatum. Is that strength so prominent that it works as in the starting five of an NBA team with expectation? And I do not have a strong positive answer there. I think you're actually underselling his passing. I not only was, and, and I wouldn't say it's better than expected. I thought he, he'd showed some. Oh, no, it's legitimately there. really good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Maybe I, I'm just misinterpreting what sure. you said. Sure, I, I think that's probably more fair. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, hitting the roll man, especially in tight quarters, he was outstanding, whether it was throwing lobs, making plays, even without penetrating the defense, uh, where guy rolls to the rim, he, he hasn't actually broken the paint yet, and, and RJ could dime him up on the move. Excellent post-entry passer, especially to Zion. He got a ton of assists, lobbing it over the top to Zion, whether it's for a dunk or just a, a conventional post-lob entry that, that Zion could then put away. Uh, out in the perimeter, he was able to catch the ball and make quick decisions with it uh, on plays where he wasn't driving himself, whether it's finding someone underneath, swinging the, the ball to the weak side with the next pass. Uh, uh, he also showed really nice vision where a lot of times they would run a pick and roll at the center. They were playing with two bigs and he would actually just find the other big uh, uh, making a nice little cut to the rim right after the pick and roll occurred, especially going to his left. One hand passes with his left uh, looked pretty good. Nice interior passing in tight quarters uh, when he would drive through some nice skip passes to the weak side. Again, that was not a strength of Duke's offense to have shooting on the weak side, but when it was there, uh, he was making the right play. Uh, going to his right in what will become a 
common theme less effective as a passer he did throw a couple of right-handers like he threw one along the baseline and kind of a hammer style pass to the opposite corner with his right hand made some shovel passes in traffic with the right hand but overall you know wasn't nearly as dynamic there but i think he's making some efforts to improve uh, with the right hand as well so i I would say the passing by far to me is his number one skill uh, that i was very impressed by uh anything else stick out to you as something that you view as a real strength of his the defensive rebounding we we talked about that already yeah I, i would say rebounding and and for him i think it was a combination of effort and positioning he was just in the right place a lot which is almost all you know effort instincts all that kind of stuff and they had a lot of rebounders so it's not like they needed him to be you know diving after everything but i thought barrett was in the right place at the right time a lot and that was true of some of his offensive rebounds as well especially the ones that were not off his own misses and yeah i think that's something that you know it's it's a good indicator of somebody who has who has some of the basketball iq elements and i mean also obviously being a great passer that can lead to improvements in other areas which i would not consider strength right now but you know maybe could be in time i would just say that scoring mentality aggressiveness now that could be good or bad but if you want to just rank that on the scale it's definitely high there are many who've kind of viewed him as oh he's such a competitor he's a winner he'll never give up which sometimes can turn into well he just keeps banging his head against the wall and takes some bad shots you know the end of the gonzaga game for those who who watch college basketball when he took i think five no hope contested shots in the lane in like the last minute of the game as, as they ended up losing uh but you know that is something that people talk to just as overall aggressive mentality confidence uh well and and along those lines i mean that's where i think the team canada stuff comes into play that was the thing i i kind of almost started talking about before but so an example there is in the fiba under 19 tournament which took place in 2017 in cairo i believe barrett and his team canada teammates faced the usa and barrett dropped 38 13 and 5 and was the mvp of the tournament was a huge player for them overall and when you look at the rosters of those two teams you know knowing a lot of what we do now with how those players developed Barrett is one of the only guys on the Canadian team that has some real import in terms of where this is going and then that U.S. team at various positions had guys that are either already in the NBA like Hamadou Diallo, Akogi, or will be very soon college teammate Cam Reddish, Kevin Herters is there, PJ Washington is going to be there soon enough so those sorts of experiences and also his success in high school are are notable because that's going against your peer group and you know you're not only competing against your peer group in the nba but it shows how if the athletic advantages that he exhibits at certain moments in college and in team canada and all that manifest that his scoring edge and his leadership and tangibles all that can really work as a positive yeah now does he have the capability to back up this strong will i'm not sure i think a a lot of his success at the high school level and at the college level to the extent you want to say that he had it was i'm just going to go through people i'm going to be bigger than them i'm going to physically overpower them if you want to talk about how he scores some pick and roll getting to the left hand some iso but really was not effective other than if he could get hard to that right hand and i'm trying to the left hand and as an athlete i think for an nba type of creator i would say that he's 
pretty average uh you know the wingspan is not amazing doesn't get incredible extension he can't get up for some nice dunks going to his left especially in transition but he's not going to take off from way out he does have some long strides but he's not going to blow by guy uh and especially if he can't just get a hard straight line drive going to his left he's a capable ball handler but he's not just like oh man he's breaking ankles with this handle so that was something i wanted to bring up i didn't see much if any shake in his game yeah and yeah it's more kind of okay i'm gonna cross over and then hey you know i i I can get my shoulder into you kind of knock you back but yeah he he very rarely beats his initial man uh and and when he tries to finish that guy is either still between him and the basket and he's kind of back down to short floater range or that guy's right on his hip still affecting the shot and then of course there's help at, at the rim as well and that's really important becoming a larger issue because a key distinction with rj barrett is barrett on the ball versus off the ball and when he is not on the ball it becomes a much larger issue his while barrett has a lot of confidence in his jump shot my only all caps note in my in in the rj barrett section is why does he have so much confidence in his jump shot but teams are that creates some real problems because then if he if he isn't on ball then teams can lay off him a little bit more easily he's going to be guarded by twos and threes that can be disruptive in the passing lanes and also you know he had those let's say the productive under 19s in FIBA he averaged 22 points a game in those seven games he was 24 percent from three in that series he he was doing a lot of other things and then this year you know you go into the synergy stats 0.9 points per possession on spot ups 0.7 on coming off of screens. Both of those are really concerning. And so that's why the threshold question with RJ Barrett is so important is because if he can't thrive, survive on ball, I think his value drops precipitously. Yeah, absolutely. And he he definitely is an on ball guy. It just becomes a question of whether he's good enough at that, that to be a number one or even a, a number two option. And back to the jumper, I think this is a big part of why I have major concerns on that issue, right? and it's not only his ability to hit a spot up but off the dribble shot 38 percent on jumpers in the half court 35 out of 92 he is not a natural shooter now he has improved a ton over the two years that i've seen him where his jumper looks a little bit less wonky but he's still very left-hand dominant dominant has a hitch in it turns his body way to the side like a lot of left-hand guys plays very much with his left side forward which you'll see a lot of left-handed guys do uh, uh, when he's facing the rim you know it, it seems like he's always kind of just got his left foot in front of his right foot and his chest will almost be facing like the right corner sometime uh on spot ups i share your concerns 32 percent on catch and shoots 53 out of 166 uh he has shown an improving ability it's not consistent yet to catch on the hop even catch every once in a while coming off of screens or popping out from under the basket to the three-point line to shoot it but doesn't go in has uh, some pretty inconsistent misses uh i do find some solace in the fact that he's at least comfortable taking these shots and for a duke team that didn't have much shooting someone had to shoot from outside a lot of times these are possessions that are not going particularly as well his shot form though and his two foot bounce don't make me think that he's going to be one of these guys who oh i can get a shoulder into you create space in the mid-range i think he's going to need doesn't have like the highest release doesn't have that much rise on the jump shot to shoot over guys and more when i'm talking about him trying to be physically dominant it's forcing his way in 
forcing up a, a tough floater and he wasn't great uh, on floaters either 19 out of 54 a lot of those very contested by the man he was guarding it's not like oh i blew by the first guy and pick and roll i'm going downhill i'm shooting the floater over the big it's kind of all right i've bullied my way into this position at the dotted line but my man is still there and now i'm gonna kind of lean into him and force up a floater that's what a lot of these shots end up being uh but to not and then also talking about deep shooting shooting the nba three i don't think his form is particularly conducive to that either uh and so there's he's taken some strides but where it is right now is still not great and the 67 percent free throw shooting doesn't make you feel particularly optimistic about just his overall natural shooting touch at a minimum he is not a natural shooter so am i gonna say he can't improve to be a solid shooter in the nba i'm not gonna say he can't but he's not there right now and so that's that's one of the things that's starting to become clear to me and we'll talk about some of the other issues where this is the case as well is he's just got a lot of things that have to get a lot better you know it's not like okay if he could just improve his shot then he's gonna be a monster no there's a lot of things and especially some things that are hard to improve where you say okay is this guy really gonna be a number one option in the nba which is the number three pick you're kind of being drafted to be and also as you mentioned the concerns that if he is not a number one option type of player then where can he fit in it and provide value something else i wanted to bring up while we were while we're talking about his offense is i went through because i was interested in the synergy splits that he was very that the blue devils were very effective when other people shot off of barrett's isolations so those are you know driving kicks things like that and some of that was barrett created you know he was generating help and then the and then that was getting the guys open duke didn't have a ton of shooters but often it was those the few guys who could really hit open shots but what concerned me about it i watched every single one of those every isolation that turned into a shot and i thought a lot of it was you know it wasn't so much barrett forcing the help as much as it was just college defenses auto helping and being overly aggressive there yeah and nba teams are not going to be as aggressive they're not going to concede these openings if the guy is not beaten and also they're way harder to beat it's you know huge threshold difference between a college three and an nba three especially because those guys have long careers so it was a positive and his passing you know that's another way that his passing was a real benefit you know if he drives and somebody comes in off the weak side he could find that player in the corner and and throw a nice pass especially if he was driving to his left but when i watched when i when i watched it i'm thinking like is this a strength that will continue it will to some form because of his passing but the separation and the reactions that were fueling some of that i think will be significantly toned down yeah and again it comes down to not necessarily beating your man and forcing the help i think to really get into the lane against nba level of defense guys who are his size now i think i could see him being effective in the post if you can get him a mismatch uh but you know he's not he's gonna just have to again kind of overpower guys and and he's gonna have to get a lot stronger too because while he's taller than a lot of those players he doesn't really wield that height very much what what so there was one transition post up that i really i like the process more than the result he kind of got move bumped a little bit from his spot but he did get that transition seal and then there was one other play i want to bring up we talked about his passing and i forgot to bring this up barrett this is unusual for a guy his size I, there was one play that really stuck out to me it was in the uh the nc state game which i watched where he drove and the primary cover was the the, the role man the, the primary passing target was the role man the role man was covered but like a good quarterback Barrett was able to go through his progression and okay if that guy's covered that probably means somebody else is open and was able to find the the secondary read of the guy in the opposite corner and that is not something most guys his size can do especially not at age 19. Yeah if he does succeed I think it's going to be as a pick and roll player and to get set a screen get the guy off him a conventional pick and roll defense get downhill force some help and then hopefully carve that up with his passing where I have the concern is 
is, is he enough of a threat even coming off of that screen that you can't just play him two on two? I think when you are a good passer, you can really make that work. But if he's going into a big who's waiting at the rim, I don't have a lot of confidence in his ability to finish. He's not going to be able to really be a huge threat from the mid-range, I would say. I want to talk a little bit more about that finishing too. Uh, In the half court, shot 53% around the basket. That's an okay number uh, per hoop math, which is all shots at the rim, 64% at the rim. A lot of these are, are transition though, where he, I thought he was excellent in transition. Uh, he's pretty, pretty fast running the floor and it makes the right passes in transition. Quick decisions can be a good grab and go guy. So he's got that. He is incredibly left-hand dominant. Uh, and whether it's going his ISO numbers, basically the only place he was effective as an ISO guy is top of the key, able to get to the left hand. And most teams were able to keep him off that. And when they did force him right, it was really difficult. He's again, you can see he's kind of trying to get better with the right hand he had a couple of decent finishes with the right hand but overall his natural instinct is to bring the ball right back into the defense with his left hand and even at the college level was not able to finish in those situations especially if he drove baseline i think he had five points on 12 possessions where he drove to his right along the right baseline and every single time it was because he was trying to bring the ball back into the defender with his left hand and he's you know he's not going to be able to rise up over guys he's he's got to really be able to get a shoulder into guys to finish and you know is not really capable of doing that with the right hand as a two-foot jumper average pretty much by nba standards uh again not going to be able to rise over guys particularly well had a lot of missed finishes around the room that i thought you know most nba prospects that are being talked about at this level number three overall pick are going to be able to make it and yeah you know what there wasn't a ton of spacing for duke and maybe if you have a perfectly spaced floor he can be really effective but there's a lot of plays where i just felt like against pretty mediocre big men he just wasn't able to score for them uh, at the rim uh and he like i said he's working on the right hand but a lot of these left-handed guys in particular just for whatever reason it's a mental block they just can't develop the finishing ability that much with the right hand I mean, if you look at like d'angelo russell or julius randall i mean those are guys who worked on the on the right hand and are capable sometimes when they shoot with the right hand but it's just not their natural instinct you know those are both guys who kind of play that same way as lefties left left side forward kind of guys and so i don't expect the right hand to be that great and it's huge for him because he's not that athletic he's got to be able to do something on the right side well, of the floor so one yeah. thing he does does right-handed is push off and he got called for a fair amount of offensive fouls and I, at first when I was watching Barrett I thought yeah he led the NCAA in charges in fact Schmitz had that set yeah I, I thought oh well you know the NBA they're going to call that differently and then I was in between like film sessions I was reading Sam Vecini's piece where he did talk to a lot of coaches and one of the coaches said he's going to get called for it a lot more in the NBA because he does it every possession then after that when I watched the next batch of film I noticed that he does it all the time like I yeah, totally well, understand because he's why not like, getting past his man and he's just right. trying to physically overpower the guy and so that is a big concern as well is that you know if if that gets you know it's been a point of education it might be a point of education next season even and that could be a problem and especially if, sure you're not cre- if you're not creating the separation in the first place then refs aren't going to reward you with those extra kind of push off things if that's like they think that's the way you're getting open because that's not skill yeah i think he can improve his euro step game he does have the long strides i've got two comps for you one he's almost the exact 
exact same size as DeMar DeRozan. I think he's has a better floor game than DeRozan. DeRozan developed his passing, but RJ is much better than him at this stage. Uh, but DeMar was a much better, I mean, DeMar is a dunk co- contest level athlete when he was younger and RJ is not even close to that kind of a level. So, uh, but I, I do think they're somewhat similar in that, you know, they don't necessarily have that blow by speed off the dribble, but DeRozan, his mid-ranger, I don't know that I would expect RJ to get there either. DeRozan deserves a ton of credit for the way he improved his jump shot, but his ability to rise up off of two feet, get to his spot, draw fouls on those plays. I don't know that I see RJ developing that type of ability and certainly nowhere near DeMar's level of finishing at the rim. DeMar is an excellent finisher at the rim. So the two, the other comp that I have for him, which is not a favorable one, and his jumper isn't nearly as bad as this guy, and he's quicker than this guy too, but Evan Turner is the other one that I have who very much at the college level was relying. He wasn't blowing by guys. He's kind of getting into the lane, rising up over them from 15 or kind of bullying guys and shooting shooting over them at the dotted line and that's a lot of how i kind of see rj at, at this point um now rj could be a more dynamic pick and roll player he's more athletic than evan turner is i really i went through every nba roster and tried to find a comp for him and i you know it's i have one more that. and it's more yeah. negative than the one you just put out there i see and both guys that i saw a lot of i saw in high school and in college he's a rj's a way better passer but i see some josh jackson in. and what i mean by that is a player who had these physical advantages at the younger ages had some real success josh jackson did in team usa he did at prolific prep and in aau capacities but then once those advantages started getting stripped away they still had the confidence but they didn't have the separation generated that that made that confidence a bit a positive also both guys have way too much confidence in their jump shot without it being actually good which is a concern unless they you know work on it and for both guys there were reasons to believe that they wouldn't and so barrett's a way better passer i think he's a significantly better pick and roll operator but remember yeah, there were, and a better better kid by far too yeah i i it, just, it certainly appears that way and so and you might remember at i, I the, we were doing an nba cast and somebody asked about about asked about rj and that josh jackson was the guy that i didn't want to poison the well with you that i thought there were some similarities in terms of like mentality that were very concerning there and for players another example of this for me not comparing them as players but oj mayo huge physical advantages when he was younger just didn't have those at the nba level and he didn't have enough depth to his game to turn the advantages he still did have into reliable positives. And all of those are very concerning for me with RJ. And it ties in with my just massive problems with him defensively. Yeah, you know, it's, I think he's got decent tools, but you know, not like a crazy wingspan. I I wouldn't expect him to be a plus defender. He can fight defensively in the post. And I think, again, he has a competitive mentality. He's strong when he decides to bring it. I didn't look at him as like, oh, man this guy is awful compared to you know i mean how many guys who are freshmen who have a 32 percent usage are like actually do anything defensively who are perimeter players like very few so uh i don't think that he has like no potential or anything but he's not incredibly quick feet he also has a low steal rate low block rate you know he's not really making plays defensively the rebounding is good you know uh, that shows uh some level of intelligence i don't think he's gonna be just like a terrible defender in time if he gets the right coaching and he's in the right situation but it's not going to be a strength of his either i wouldn't say and you seem to be lower on it even than that than i am what concerns me a lot about barrett's defense is that he doesn't play with force he doesn't make even even if he has physical advantages he generally doesn't make the person who he's covering feel them it's like there were plays in it were in isolation where he was moving his feet well and you're sitting there and he's like in front of his guy and then the guy just shoots a shoots the jump shot or 
gets to the basket. And yeah, some of that could be a lack of length. Too. It, 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 yeah, lack of length, which isn't going to be, improve when he faces NBA talent. Maybe if he ends up being a two, and then at that point he'll be strong. He'll be taller than a lot of the guys. Ideally, he'll be stronger than many of them as well. But from my experience, players who have that as their weakness—not necessarily their physical tools, but the way they use them—it's a lot harder to get them to change. Because yeah, maybe he's playing a lower role, but it certainly would have helped Duke if he was if he was more engaged. That was a weird freshman-led, not only freshman-led team, but almost exclusively freshman team, I'm a little bit freaked out about that because if Barrett's offense isn't there, he's going to have to, de- he's going to need to be at least stable defensively. And there were plays where he, and, and some of this might have been Coach K scheme. I don't, I didn't have too good a handle. Maybe after I watched more Reddish, I'll have a better sense of this, where Barrett was just, he was coming off of his guy on the weak side, not really affecting anything else on the floor. You know, maybe he was, uh, his intention was to affect a driver or something like that. And then just, they would kick the ball to the corner maybe he would try to close out but he wouldn't close out well enough to affect the shot that could be because he didn't close out hard enough it could be because he left too much space sometimes that can be a problem and that can be corrected with time but remember those distances are further than the nba because the three-point line is is deeper and the types of mistakes he made like this is not you know markel fultz who just actively didn't give a shit i think that barrett's tools are better i well maybe his tools aren't better but he like i think there's more to work with with him than somebody like fultz but i've one of the mistakes that I've tried to tone down one time is that players with, you know, kind of kind of effort-based or like not using the tools they have stuff, I used to give them way too much of the benefit of the doubt. And now we've seen a lot of those guys just never end up being great defenders is, is pushing a little bit far. They often don't, don't end up being good. Yeah, unless they go play for Brett Braun, who's actually made Simmons and Fultz at times look good. Obviously, yeah. Fultz isn't there anymore. Well, and Simmons, uh, with Simmons, he, he always had the physical tools. It was just that he didn't care at all. So that's a little bit different for me. Well, anyway, uh, that aside, I, I'm not high on Barrett uh, many of the moves the, the scoring I mean, he is below average efficiency in college doesn't get to the line a ton you know 32% free throw rate is okay but not amazing for the type of guy th- that he was and, and again the, the shooting there was not a very good either the 67% but so much of what I watched him other than in transition was just like that's not an NBA move that's not an NBA move that's not going to work in the NBA and I think the, the easier thing because I feel so much lower on him than many and particularly people that, that I respect like Schmitz and Gavoni uh seem to be pretty high on him and I think a lot of what their rationale for that is it's just the situation at Duke was not good and that with more space he's gonna look a lot better and I'm just not sure that that's true I mean I think if it does go wrong for me uh here and, and he turns out to be really good how does that happen well I think you know he just becomes a great pick and roll operator really good in transition as as a grab and go guy adequate defender who can do some switching and then the jump shot has to come around he's just he's not athletic enough to be a really good NBA player unless that jump shot really improves and really comes around I'm not I'm not a believer in that right now there's people have certainly improved their shooting that we never would have expected I mean just look at Kyle Lowry who's now one of the better shooting point guards that we've seen or Pascal and, Siakam yeah I mean there's there's guys who've done it and I think you know RJ does have a good work ethic good kid he's uh Rowan Barrett his father is played professionally for a while and is now uh I can't remember if he's like the head of the Canadian national team or not that might be Steve Nash but you know very high up in the Canadian 
national team uh all of that but i think when you look at just the amount of confidence yeah i think he's gonna he could put up some raw stats just like he did at duke depending on what what kind of team he goes to and i could see him being someone who we have to say no actually the fact that this guy just scored 19 points a game in his rookie year doesn't mean that he's going to be the next superstar sorry knicks fans or whoever and that then if he ever gets on a team where he's got to be more of a complimentary piece it, it becomes difficult so yeah i i think i haven't looked at the other guys yet but i think i don't feel great about him as the number three pick we'll put it that way uh just in a normal draft and maybe this draft is that weak but i i also just don't, i don't think that he's like the type of player that can work in the nba which makes it's weird to say as a guy who's got the ball in his hands all the time but it's just i'd rather take a chance on someone who you know even could is just a better fit in the nba i mean i haven't watched reddish yet at all i, I have a feeling i'm not going to be too incredibly pleased with him either but it just i don't see the upside with him you know i think he, he maybe the upside is like primary creator on a really below average offense you know that's kind of like how, how i see him at, at this point and i'm just not sure how he's got potential superstar upside with just his physical tools and the lack of shooting i mean it, it, there's how many wings are there that you look at who are not elite athletes and aren't great shooters and are really good i mean that give me a list there's not many i don't i don't even know as, that as guys who are going to be creators you know it's just and, and i think that the fact that you can't kind of go through the nba and find a real comp for him that you feel good about is a massive concern as well in addition to that what bothers me about barrett as a prospect is that if that best case scenario if we're not dealing with let's say the top 15 percent of his offensive outcomes he is a much less valuable player than a more limited guy who like more limited offensive skill set who who does the things well like I'll, I'll give an example here of robert covington let's say like robert and he takes too many threes as well like robert covington takes more shots than he should but he's not taking as much off the table necessarily and he's bringing more obviously he's a wonderful defender and all those sorts of things and so with barrett if he's not good enough to run your offense to be on the ball whether it's as a starter or second unit like i think he could end up being a really interesting guy in those second unit minutes whether he's starting or not like maybe you run some sort of a stagger and he's out there and can really be a linchpin either in a multi-ball handler lineup or something else and also he won't be as attacked as much defensively but let's let's use the three and d archetype here those sorts of players are in many ways more valuable because you have to get another star anyway and they can fit next to a star and so if barrett isn't good enough to shoulder that load then you still have to find that three and d wing yeah that's true i think he's got a very high bust potential uh i, I mean not like oh totally out of the nba bust potential but just like not a top not 25 being, player at his position yeah yeah not not being a, a winning player and yeah his ball skills for his size his passing impressive but i just don't see any other strengths for him offensively i really don't like he's a, a solid dribbler and a solid passer and you know i guess he can kind of i mean like go through guys or like attack mismatches it's just you know i don't see him being able to take the nba three off the dribble really maybe he could get to be you know a 34 percent spot up guy and again all of these things can change and but I, I don't think that's the most likely outcome here um let's hit on some news very quickly Woj reporting that in houston we've seen some signs of a major shakeup coming with the coaching staff and now that basically everyone but probably not james harden is available lots of interesting layers to this i don't think we need to talk about what trades might be available mark stein in a follow-up report said clint capella in particular is being shopped there are some layers to this i want to get into one was james harden's comments 
after game six when he was asked hey what do you need to do to get better as a team he's like i know what it is but i'm not going to say essentially so maybe that presaged this shakeup. remember they're the reporting that he had had some disagreements with chris paul about uh who was going to be dominating the ball and paul was actually awesome in that game six but was not good really before that in the warriors series you can also point to tillman Fertitta's comments after game six saying oh yeah we're like we didn't make the western conference finals he said the word western conference finals a number of times there and then perhaps Perhaps that leads to once more my favorite topic these days fallout from that crazy west playoff bracket if they lose to the warriors in game six of the west finals or they lose to the warriors in game six and kevin durant was available does any of this happen and another question is you know who is really driving this is this daryl morey there's that report that we talked about on the last episode out of houston locally that this is morey driving the coaching staff and that you know he is known as kind of a championship or bust sort of guy uh is it tillman Fertitta who is saying hey you got to make major changes here this wasn't good enough to not get to the west finals and you know Fertitta was definitely uh very adamant that there were never going to rest and also there is perhaps the specter maybe not a primary driver but if they decide to remake their team by making trades might be a little easier to stay under the luxury tax this year than if they try to just add to the existing core already just as a general proposition danny is this how you'd be approaching it if you were them i mean obviously you always listen on on any of your players unless it's you know a james harden type of guy but do you feel like i mean it seems to have gotten beyond that level now to like okay we need to make a change that seems to be the mentality do they need to make a change or if you were in their position would you just try and run it back with this group next year there is a a big parallel for me with this with the coaching staff turnover and that without the further context which will come with time you can take either a positive or negative view of this that depends a lot on your own expectations so with the coaching staff maybe they end up hiring better coaches than the ones they had but also maybe they don't maybe it's gonna alienate d'antoni or or many other things i think this is a similar story where you always listen i mean to me there are very few untradeable players in the entire league and i would argue that houston doesn't have any of them harden is wonderful but he's on a crazy expensive contract he will probably you know i think he could age possibly reasonably well but not you know the expectation should be that each year is at least that the expected value is worse than the last year maybe he ends up exceeding it you know he had a a great year this year can happen and he's paid a ton of money so yeah in that sort of a circumstance if another team overvalues your asset you do it but if the Rockets really wanted to be better and wanted to to go after full bore they would have approached the last year plus different I mean they didn't use the full mid-level exception there was a a part of uh, Jonathan Fagan's mailbag that came out where he talked about how they had a plan for the mid-level exception and that's another one of those like positive like how you interpret it like oh they had a plan they were going to use it for buyout candidates and then it didn't appear that happens to be really convenient oh look there was a point they had a plan to use it that didn't end up happening and so they they didn't have to spend the money they didn't get in the luxury tax. I'm not saying his reporting is incorrect. I'm just saying that's, you know, it's it's ways of spinning the same story. And Trevor Riza, Lucas Shard and Bamote, despite his last season, you know, like there are lots of ways that they could have been better. And one of the big concerns for me with Houston is that they don't have a lot of clear-cut positive value contracts, and they also don't have a lot of clear-cut needs. So if you trade Chris Paul, what the hell is that trade? Are you going to get a another wing? Is a team going to trade a small for a bigger? 
wings are wings are extremely valuable around the league. Chris Paul is paid a ridiculous sum of money. So we if we assume he picks up his player option, 124.1 million over the next three seasons. That's more than 40 mil per season in his 30s, well into his 30s. And Capella, nice value, but centers generally aren't super valued around the league. Are you going to get a return that makes them better? Probably not. So, and it's not like they're loaded with draft picks or anything like that where they have, or young talent. They traded DeAnthony Melton, let's say, in the in the Ryan Anderson deal, Marquise Chris deal last year. So my instinct is that if they make wholesale changes, it's not going to make them better. It might make them cheaper, but it's, I don't, and that's my expected value. Daryl Morey's a fantastic GM. He could defy my expectations as Sam Presti has in the past, but it's not my expectation. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be looking to trade Harden at this point in time because I, I think he is good enough to maybe have a, a championship window open. A lot of it just depends on what happens with the Warriors uh, as well. Uh, Fertitta said this today to Jonathan T- Fagan of the Houston Chronicle via text message. Our organization's position is why be a fourth seed and one of the top things, but you know you probably can't win a championship with this exact team. So it's what I said the night after the loss. Wherever we can improve coaching our players, let's do it, but let's not change the change. We have to know we can improve in that position, whether it's a coach, film guy, or trainer. So that, to me, I mean, why be a fourth seed and one of the top th- teams, but you know you probably can't win a championship with this exact team? Okay, well, if that if that's how he's thinking, I'm not sure that I would agree there, especially if they can get some reinforcements and, you know, we'll see what the Warriors look like next year if KD leaves and who they can fill in. But I mean, you've got a team right now that would be the favorite to be probably the two seed again. And, you know, the fourth seed, yeah, okay, they really were the second seed. Uh, you know, they, they win one more game than the second seed. It, it does well, seem well, that's what, like, that's again, what makes this such an insane, like, an insane framing of this is, like, you, yeah, the second seed... It really is. The second seed would be code for like the set the or the fourth seed for being the fourth best team. They were the second best team in the West going into the playoffs. I mean, if we want to go since January first, remember they had all those defensive issues at the beginning of the year. After January first, they were the fourth best team in the NBA. <laughs> In, in terms of net rating, cleaning the glass, they were plus, outscoring teams by 7.5 points per end possessions. Yeah, the Jazz and the Warriors were ahead of them, but I mean, the Rockets were in that mix. The Rockets beat the Jazz in the playoffs so easily. What, what more does he, what more does he expect? And what more does he expect that he that that wasn't you know that that okay we're going to let Trevor Reza go on a one year 15 million dollar deal because he wouldn't have helped? Oh, but we're the four seed, so now we're going to do it. It's it's again, it's these things that could be if you took it at face, maybe oh it could be justified, but when you take it all together it's like oh no this is just a it's just a series of escalating statements that look like they're saving face and also misread the circumstance yeah we'll have a lot more to talk about when we get into their offseason let's kind of see how this plays out over the next week or so uh and we can come up with some potential trades and really evaluate that speaking of potential trades quickly ad and david griffin along with chris paul met this morning in la they're expected to continue a dialogue moving forward but sham says it is highly unlikely that davis's stance changes on wanting a trade and out of chicago casey johnson reported last week that kobe white left the combine with widespread speculation that he has received a draft promise and two league executives believe that white's promise is from a team that picks before the bulls at number seven now that could just be a smoke screen the the bulls desperately need a point guard with white skill set who can shoot and they've been known to make the promise before uh and then finally rj hampton
Hudson, who is uh, one of the top prospects in the class of 2020. He will play for the New Zealand Breakers in the NBL, which is the Australian and New Zealand League. Uh, they started this program where there's a slot that doesn't count against the import limit for young players to develop. And again, the reason that this happens for the Australian League is that NBA teams, I, I forget what the exact number is, I think it's going to be like 750k this year, can pay up to a certain amount it's called the excluded international player payment that doesn't count against the cap to buy an international player out of his contract and so the way it works i think this is probably what happened with ferguson you remember ferguson took a while to actually sign and perhaps part of the reason for that was this buyout issue and getting fiba clearance but so hampton goes and signs in new zealand and they put a big buyout in his contract to give him an nba out for a certain amount then the nba team pays his buyout uh hampton gets paid more than he would make in college gets to play in a professional league without too many games and can get back you know out of the league and begin his draft prep very early on and then the team gets paid by this buyout payment you know who knows what the number ends up being in the contract but they could basically just set it at whatever they want and then up to that 750k above that then the player would have to pay it out of his own contract so that's part of the economics of this you could probably view this as a failure for the g league's new program where they're going to be offering contracts up to like 125k for players of hampton's ilk and it looks like for whatever reason australia was deemed more attractive uh, for him than that g league program a couple of other things to note hampton this was not an academic issue it was not him lacking qualifications he he had a lot of high major offers i think i heard schmidt say that he has a 3.7 gpa so yeah, this is yeah. not ferguson and moutier uh the two most recent and brandon jennings the, probably the three most recent top prospects to go overseas all did have those academic issues right so this is hampton making a conscious choice i think another important benefit you talked about the schedule the calendar i think that's an a big benefit for the abl or the nbl and another one is it's an english language country so a lot of the adjustments like that that brandon jennings went through going to italy not as big of a deal and i'm going to be fascinated to see what this does it's to me it puts a stronger impetus on the nba to figure things out to keep these players in-house or fix the age limit and i think it should be both like you you create a, a series of different avenues within the united states or at least north america to make that happen so yeah i'm very interested in how all this works out what the ripple effects are moving forward i wouldn't be surprised if this continues to happen until the system gets fixed also this came down while we were recording uh og ananobi upgraded to questionable yay which uh you know we'll see whether he can get out there or not uh and how how much he can help him he's been well, out over a month now. and we also we also there was also reporting today because it was media day in toronto that his appendix ruptured and so there was a, an infection issue which is part of why he's been out so long oh yeah that's uh yeah and he's probably lost a lot of weight i mean i, I more likely than not that he's not be able to be effective and also as a non-shooter he brings some problems on the offensive end uh, at least he's shot it poorly this season all right anything else to talk about before we go yeah so my uh, my real gm radio episode for this week was a finals preview we actually covered some very different ground i went talked with rob mahoney of sports illustrated and then we also did a, a segment which we might end up doing on this show we've talked about it in different things on how these playoffs have affected the thought process for high profile free agents and anthony davis so that was really fun real gym radio whatever podcast player you like then my bucks offseason preview came out for the athletic and i have some new material that'll be coming out but the other big one nba cast back full bore finals game one 
starting at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, everywhere else, whatever it is there. And it'll be a lot of fun to talk about a game with these high stakes and to start a series. Like, you know, the Warriors have had home court in all these finals, so we haven't really gotten to do that breakdown of a first game, which is, for me, the most fun intellectually. All right, we will talk to you all tomorrow night when game one of the NBA Finals is in the books. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.